What's up, guys? Welcome to Today's Money. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, there's a link for that in the description. And if you want to jump right into the podcast, skip the next 30 seconds of ad space. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the channel. So today's video is going to be a little bit different. We're in a completely different location, as you can tell. And as we push into the new year, I know that a lot of you guys are taking this time to pull away from your trading and do a lot of not just self-reflection, but even further self-development. So today I'm sitting with someone who I think can bring you guys a lot of value. Now, whether you take his information word for word and apply it into your life directly, or if you take his information and it helps you think a different way, either way, I know that because of some of the topics we're going to touch on today, you're going to be able to pull value out of this. So everybody, this is my dad, Cole Silver. We can shake hands. We can be formal. That's about as formal as we'll get. Okay. So if you want to intro to me, to everybody, give us like a 90 second, uh, minute and a half update on who you are and what you've done. So I'm really known in the neighborhood as Austin's father. So that's pretty much what I've done. Um, so professionally, um, practiced law for 35 years. I had my own law firm. Then I was a chief legal officer for 25 years to various companies. And now I'm a chief client officer to an Amlaw 100 law firm. Awesome. So going from the legal officer to the client director, client officer, we'll talk about that a lot because I think that the people watching will take value out of your coaching and your mentoring. And we'll talk about that. But before we get into the coaching and the mentoring, I want to start with just the overall topic of success. So for everyone watching, can you define what success means to you? Well, I think that success means to me is having an impact on the greatest number of people, positive impact. To me, work, uh, professionalism is all about service and impact. And so I would like to uh, think that everybody that I come in contact with, I make their lives a little better. That's success. Impact. Impact. Not financial, not monetary, not um, how many degrees you have or what job you have, the impact that you can do with your job. It's all about impact because at the end of, um, you know, I'm getting older, at the end of your life, um, the corner office, the millions of dollars, um, the titles, they mean absolutely nothing. Um, When you're going through it in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, they mean a lot. But... As you start to reflect, um, no, it's the impact that you made on people's lives. When you reflect back on your impact, what mm-hmm. moments stand out the most to make you think like that was something I did that led to an impact on a, a massive amount of people? If you could pick something or three things that you've done. I think whether I'm dealing with one person individually or whether I'm dealing in an organization, my a goal is just always to help people experience their success, whatever it is that they want. And I think that I have the ability to get people to collaborate because I'm a bridge builder and to work towards a common goal. Um, when they don't collaborate and work towards a common goal, I tend to uh, draw back and be very negative. But the times that I've had the greatest impact on the greatest number of people is when we had a collective goal and we put steps in place to get there. I can definitely relate to that, even when it goes to the logo of my business, which means transcendence as a group. You go further as a group than you would stand alone. 
so I can understand that completely. Nothing in this world happens alone. Yeah. Right? I mean, everything that you do, every success that you have, every impact that you make will basically depend on the amount of people that you're involved with. And I know, you know, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship versus working for someone. Mm -hmm. What I decided after having my own law practice was that I was not having a big enough impact because I was working on small deals and I was not working on large, interesting transactions. So that led me away from entrepreneurship and working for big companies. So we can stem that into success, I think, a lot because for some people, even in our audience, in my audience, they think that success is defined by not only the amount of money you make, but by that whole attitude you think I used to live by, which I never have, which was like the fuck the nine to five, fuck the having the boss, because I need to do it myself. So you realize that because of your skills, almost, you would make more of an impact going to a bigger law firm, like you said before, or maybe an international law firm, something like that, where you can work with other people, bridge people together from even different parts of the world to make success happen, more impact happen in that way. Well, yeah, I mean, when I, um, when I had my own firm, the biggest deal I worked on was maybe a million dollars. When I went in to work for companies as a chief legal officer, I was working on hundreds of millions of dollars globally. Level. Totally different level. What motivated you, I think, before you go deeper in that, what motivated you to know that the million dollar deals weren't enough for you? Why was that not enough? I was bored. The numbers were just too small, the problems were too small. It just yeah. wasn't keeping you as excited as these multi-million dollar deals with so many different moving parts and so many different people from all over the world trying to work together. You like that connecting. So yeah. go back a little bit. Now, I know a personal story about you. Go back to even when you were in college and you told me about that class that you took where you worked as a representative for the UN, right? And you had to work with all these different people in your class that represented different countries. What did that, because you referenced that story a lot, it taught you a lot about yourself. What did that teach you? So the story goes that, first of all, I was a business major, and I thought that I was going to go into dad's, my dad's business. Which was what? Electrical supplies. Right. Um, and um, we had this poli-sci class, and the teacher asked us to come in on a Saturday to do a simulation of the Korean War. He made me the Secretary General of the United Nations. And through negotiations and intense discussions, we were able to solve the crisis without anybody losing any life. And it just showed me that my strength with um, issues and people is resolution of problems and influencing people. So it led me to believe at that point that I no longer wanted to work in dad's business. I wanted to become a lawyer and I wanted to work for the State Department solving international disputes. Well, I went to law school, but then I never got the job at the State Department, so I had to change direction, and um, you know, things worked out in my career, but you have to be able to move in shock when things change. Definitely. Right. So that makes me think of a different scenario in your life, something that does directly stem into the definition of success. I think a lot of the time, successful people don't regret anything because they look at everything like a lesson. They take something from it, even if it's a failure on paper, and it's not really a failure, they're learning. But something that you've spoken to me about regretting in the past has was your decision to go to Washington and go to college at GW and not go to Penn, even though you were accepted into an Ivy League school. Right. What has that 
decision done for you later in life? Do you still regret it now or have you changed your definition of regret and looked at that decision as maybe a positive more than a negative? Um, I think for a period of time I looked at it like I shouldn't have gone to Penn because it's Ivy League and um, you know people just look at you different when you went to Ivy League back then but the experiences that I had in Washington I worked on Capitol Hill I worked in a jail in Virginia I wouldn't have got that in Philly so life happens for a reason it unfolds for myriads of reasons Um, I made the decision so again I'm trying not to regret it of course they say that success is bouncing from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm that's a Winston Churchill quote your favorite guy right yeah What do you think, speaking on that decision to not go to Penn, would you look at that as a failure? And what other failures have you bounced from, maybe between then and now, that have led you to more success, do you think? What are key moments that you were like, shit, this is a failure almost, or maybe it is a failure, I lost. What am I going to learn from this? How is it going to make me better? What are some of those key moments? There really are so many failures, right? I mean, I've lived a long time, um, and I think... You know, if it, if life goes in one direction, meaning you never fail, you're never going to know what it feels like. You're never going to know what it feels like, and you're never going to really get out of your comfort zone. Right. Nothing does go. Uh, nobody, everybody fails at something. Everybody gets sick. Everybody faces some challenges in their life. The question is, do you have the resilience to bounce back? There are some people who at 50 will say my life is over. There are some people at 63 who are sick saying, no, I still got a lot left in me. So it all depends on your resilience. Now, I teach lawyers how to get business. Um, And resilience is a key issue there, too. Because if I try to call you and get business, and you hang up on me or you reject me, what do I do? It's easy to quit right there. Just quit. So I think that resilience and persistence and being optimistic and learning from your mistakes is really a key in everything in life because the only thing that you have control over, the only thing, is your attitude. So if you have the right attitude, which we were just talking about, then even if you continue to fail, you'll be okay. Because you'll look at it like it's a lesson. And exactly. It, but what's a specific moment for you? Maybe give it a recent one if that's more fresh on the mind last few years, something that you looked at as a failure, keep it professional if you can, and how did you bounce back from that? So I was working as a chief legal officer for a company, and we were highly regulated, and I did everything the regulators told me to do. I even had to get rid of certain board members, and um, I did everything. It went up to the second level at the Department of Banking. And a lawyer up there said, no, you have to do more. You have to get rid of more people. You have to pay a fine. And that was an error on my part because I played by the rules. And I learned that in some instances, that doesn't work. Be more specific. Give me more information on that. I'm interested to know. What do you mean? I did everything I was supposed to do. And it still wasn't enough to make them happy. Right. So at the end of the day, I had to play the game. And I had to get somebody on my board who knew somebody to get my license. And that's kind of where you're saying you almost had to not play by the rules. You had to know know somebody to get it done. That's not written in the rules anywhere. Anywhere. Right. 
And so I was naive. I cost my company a lot of money and time. And I felt really bad that I had played it straight, which I always do because that's, that's who I'm. That's what I was going to say. That's you. But it didn't work. And so it was distressing. And what happened? How did it resolve itself? I got somebody who knew somebody on my board and uh, we resolved the matter. So when you talk about playing by the rules, it makes me think of the traditional path that even you wanted me to go down, You that I, that I would say you define success by almost. So let's back up a little bit. Do you think that for people watching, they need a degree in 2020 to become successful and make that kind of an impact that you're talking about? Um, so on one hand, the quick answer is no, right? Of course. I mean, you're a testament to that. There are a lot of people who don't go to college and become successful. What I think college does is since most men's brains are not fully formed until you're 25, it gives you time to reflect and to learn about what people do to make a living and where you want to play in the scheme of life. So all it does is give you time to reflect and learn. And I think that's important because the rest of your life, all you do is work, right? Unless you're independently wealthy. Right. So I still think very highly of college. I love learning. Like, I, I like to go to the library all the time. Yeah, so I think that everything is what you make it, right? Even a bad situation. So um, I did a lot of things in college. I went to Europe and studied. I worked on Capitol Hill. I met people who negotiated treaties. I wouldn't have met them. And that's why even with your entrepreneur audience, the entrepreneurs that I've seen succeed faster and more successful in a lot of ways are ones that work for someone else for a while to learn and gather input from a lot of different sources and then go out on their own. Um, because there's so many valuable people, contacts, and information that you can get from a good university or a good company that you would not get. So it's almost like you should, that, that the college atmosphere shortcuts the potential path that you go down because of the experience that you're able to really suck from other people that have gone through it. Exactly. So would you say that's something that is a almost like a prerequisite for success would be experience. Whether you get that experience firsthand or you learn it through someone else, I think experience, we would agree, is one of the biggest things that you need to get under your belt if you want to become successful in anything, right? It goes to like that mastery thing, the 10,000 hours to really accomplish anything, you know? Right. Well, think about it. How do people learn about anything? They can read about it. They can hear about it. They can go fucking do it. Or they can do it. Yeah. Experience is truly the only real teacher, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, and that's really what life's about, anyway. Part of experience too is going through tough situations, because those tougher situations, it's almost like when you when you talk about experience, it's like basketball. When you were my basketball coach as a kid, and we would line up and do layups before the game, you're going through that exercise. You're experiencing what those layups are like. But you know when you go and do that layup in the game, you're going up against a defender that's way bigger than both of you and me, and he's going to try to block the shot. So the experience then kind of turns into a challenge, like it's a life situation, and then you have to react. So through those tough situations, what do you think keeps people driven 
What would, would you, what do you recommend that's kept you driven as you try to get experience under your belt in something, but you encounter tough situations? There's only two things that drive people. One is love. Fear. Or fear. Right. So the thing that drove me was the love of my family and the fear of poverty. Yep. That's it. Yep. Um, I would do anything for my family, get up four o'clock, work two jobs. I always felt that once I had a family, that was my primary job, to take care of them. Um, and I have had a fear of poverty, which is sort of weird, because you know I didn't grow up poor, we didn't grow up rich, but I always, uh, even when I was 13 years old, had a job, started putting money away, because I always felt that um, you never know what could hit you, and you don't want to be on the street. So... Um, you have to find out what motivates you, fear or poverty. I mean, fear or love. I would certainly argue go towards love because usually the fear is ego-driven. But fear is a motivator, I won't lie. When I had my own firm, if I didn't go out and bring in business, I wasn't going to eat. That was fear. So, and I think a lot of people listening probably can relate to that because I know a lot of people that are watching are in a sales or entrepreneurial driven business where you have to go out and, and just like a trader, you eat what you kill. And if you don't kill anything, you don't eat. you're not eating. Right. So it's almost like you would want to be motivated by fear to a point, maybe not fully motivated, motivated by fear. Like you're saying, you definitely would, I think want that positive energy of the love to power, overpower that. But I think being driven by fear to some extent is almost like it lights that fire. Like it's like, you know what I mean? You got to make or break here. The problem with uh, being driven by fear all the time is that your internal biology gets accelerated. The fight or flight yeah. kind of thing. So it increases worry. It increases stress. It almost kills you sooner. It kills you, right? The stress will kill you. Right. So you're right. You have to find a natural balance of love and fear. Hopefully what you're doing, what you're selling, what you're promoting is something that you're passionate about, right. and you can have fun doing it. Right. Um, if you're not, then you really need to change your career. Of course. Right. So, for people maybe that are going through a career change or are going through like a point in their business, I know a lot of people listening are in a transitionary phase of like they are doing something to generate income and cover those bills, but they they need to step on the gas. But a lot of people struggle to step on the gas and figure out. How do, you, they, how do they take it to the next level? Is it as simple as getting a second job or as simple as finding out what motivates them? But I think it's as simple as understanding the habits that you need to have. So talk to us about success habits, habits that you follow and that you've seen successful people follow that cultivate success. Whether it's driven by fear or driven by love, what are the habits that people do that lead to the most success? You know, you could say get up early, take care of your health, um, Work hard, work smart. Um, don't sit in front of the television at night, but plan for, you know, the future. But I want to get back to even something a little bit more basic than habits, because before you get to habits, you get to attitude, um, and you get to emotions. So, one of the things that I always ask my clients, my lawyers, before I start coaching them is what do you want? What do you want your life to be? What do you see yourself in five or 10 years? 
And very few people can answer that question, even professionals. It'll stump anybody. It's weird. So you've got to figure out what it is that you want. So how do you figure out what it is you want? Figure out what you don't want and do the opposite, like you did. That's it. Um, so once you figure out what it is that you want, I would say one good habit is to surround yourself with people who have already succeeded at doing what you're doing or what you want to do. Because who you hang out with is who you become. And um, those people can advance your career. And the second thing I would say is put together a plan and execute on it with resiliency and persistence. Um, And if you never quit, you never lose. And and as you often say, go big or go home, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I wanted to be Secretary of State. That's ridiculous that I would ever become Secretary of State. But for a while there, I thought I would be. I mean, you you landed off pretty all right. Yeah, but I I never got close to being Secretary of State. That's not what you were meant to do. Right. So, but I still, what I'm saying is, I had big dreams. Yes. So maybe... um, to land as a chief legal officer of a multi-million dollar company wasn't bad. No. But that goes into that, that, that's the Grant Cardone, the 10X thing. You shoot for 10X, and if you fall at 5X or 4X, you're still going to be okay. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, something that I think has led to a lot of success for you has been your, not only your impact on the companies you work with, but also the individual people. You've spent a lot of time, not just coaching me and my brother, but also mentoring and coaching Basically random people, you know, to the point where I even remember you were on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters and you were introducing me to just so many people. Like you said, you've always been a connector of people. But specifically, it seems like you've always taken an investment into coaching and mentoring. What attracted you to that? I want to know specifically, was it something that you thought would better yourself? Was you being a coach and a mentor towards other people something that you were almost doing for a selfish reason? Because it makes you better in some way? No. Okay. It's my strength. So you have to find your strength. Like, we could go into the garage right now, find a lot of things that don't work. I couldn't make them work. I can't screw on a light bulb. You, you're very talented that way. My strength is not working with things, nor is it working with data. Um, It's working with people. I know people. I like people. I empathize with people and I make people feel important. People's success is my juice. I like that. That's it. That's what I was put on this earth for. When did you realize that? Even when I was a little kid, um, when your Aunt Sherry ran away with a guy, I was sent to go get her. Mm -hmm. When there were problems in the family, I was still a young kid. So it was like you were this adult role almost from a kid, Mm -hmm. which makes you be a coach, which makes you be a mentor. It almost breeds you into being a good mentor and a good coach. Even growing up in Philly, if I was playing basketball and a bunch of guys wanted to fight after calling a foul, I would, you know, separate them. So my strength... Is mediation. Is mediation, problem solving, and helping people experience success. I got another one. I think another strength you have is helping people communicate their message in a more clear way. Because if I'm having an issue, if I'm beefing with you and we're fighting and Cole steps in and he's able to make my message more clear to you and your message more clear to me, 
well, we might not be beefing anymore. We might not be fighting anymore because the communication has been repaired. I think communication is a big attribute of successful people as well and of a good coach. I want to ask you, what do you think are the attributes of a successful mentor or a successful coach for me? I'm your kid and I'm starting this business now with Riley and we've been growing very quickly to the point where I'm actually, my biggest issue with coaching right now is a language barrier. You know, I have the time to give and I have that drive to want to help people because I believe it's a strength in me. But a big thing for me right now has been this language barrier where I'm communicating with people from all over the world. Communication is an issue when it comes to mentorship and coaching. So like I said, what do you think are some of the... Um, best qualities in a coach? What are the strengths that if I'm looking for a coach in any field, whether I'm an up-and-coming lawyer watching this and I need to be a better lawyer, or I'm an up-and-coming day trader and I want to be a trader, I know now from listening to you that I need a mentor and I need that coach to help me get that experience that leads to more success. But what should I look for in the coach? The number one uh, success trait of a good coach is the ability to listen. I knew you were going to say that empathetically yep. not just listen and sort of say okay well, what am I going to say next but to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and really feel what they're feeling and make them know that you feel it that's the kicker that's where I struggle still well that's where you get the trust factor right and once you get the trust factor you win it's over whether you're selling legal services or you're selling widgets Everything is trust. So listening empathetically develops trust. What's it? What's it? For someone like me, I think a lot of people struggle with this. Watching, I know it's an issue. What do you do if you struggle to listen empathetically? Riley tells me all the time. Sometimes she thinks that I'm talking. I'm not listening to her talk because I'm already ready to think about what I want to say back. Is that just my ego, or is that just me not slowing down? What What is that? where you're not listening properly, maybe. How do you fix it? Well, I guess the, the thing would be is to slow down, right? And to chill out and just really put yourself in the other person's shoes. I feel like... It's okay to slow down. You talk very fast. I do. You think very fast. Mm -hmm. So you want to take a pregnant pause and just listen um, because your responses will be more you know sure um, accurate genuine yeah yeah for someone like me then I feel like for a, a point in my growth not that I thought this consciously but almost I felt like I was uncoachable so and I'm not and I've realized that but are there people who are uncoachable absolutely and what do you do with them when like, I fire them fire them yeah because um we're wasting more time. Is it all ego, basically, getting in the way every time? They're not no. listening. They're, they're barking at you. They're not... Like, when I deal with a trader who thinks that they know better than me, I do the same thing. You just walk off. But is it just their ego overpowering no. it? Well, it could be their ego. It could be that they don't like me. They don't like my advice. Right. Because I'm not the kind of coach that just listens and says, well, what if, what if? Because I actually grew a practice. Um, you know, I give... Concrete Actionable yes, advice. Yes, yeah. um, And I think there are a lot of people uh, at the end of the day who really don't want to do what they think they want to do. What do you mean? Well, before I had this job, I was doing consulting on the side. I remember. 
and lawyers would pay me a lot of money to put together a business plan to go out there and get business. And we would do all the work and they would do nothing. So they may think they want the spoils of having clients, the money, but they don't have the habits or the, um, the energy to do what it takes. The work ethic. Um, well, the fear is overcoming them, right? The fear. Rejection. The fear of not being a winner. Right, right. Lawyers are... Because they're driven so much by ego. Right. Most lawyers are. Most lawyers are, absolutely. Right. So if they're driven by... If you're... Pull it away from lawyers. Most people, I think, are driven by an ego to some extent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you're driven by an ego, there's just so many... What, what, so right. Eli, here's another thing that makes you a good coach. Sure. Or a good listener. Is to find the person under the ego. So when you're talking to somebody, say, okay, well, now they're talking with their ego. Let me get to the real person, the emotional person. How do you do that? Um, More questions? Why? Why? What? Why? How? Is that how you get to it? Yeah. You just kind of piece at them? Yeah. Like a chisel. Just keep going at them. Give me more information. Why are you you saying that? Where is that coming from? What does that mean? Be more clear with me. I'll give you an example. Um, A lawyer who I've mentored for many, many years calls me the other day. And she's really angry at her current boss. And she doesn't know what to do. Stay in a company, leave, whatever. And after just listening and listening and asking questions, I said to her, your problem is that you can't forgive him. He was more than a boss, he was a friend, and now you're pissed at your friendship. You've got to forgive him, and then you'll be able to move on. And that happens to a lot of people, even in marriages. I was gonna say, that sounds like a relationship. Well, everything is a relationship, right? right. Everything, whether it's your boss, your wife, your kids, everything's a relationship. But the emotional baggage in those relationships prevent people from moving forward. When you see someone like her and you have to piece that through and you have to kind of go through that exercise, do you think that, do you see that repeated where you have to, like as a coach, you have to almost tackle the same issues with the same people, which tells you what? That it's mostly the same ego problems? Is it this? Is it generally? There are a lot of that. I, I am into emotions. Um, because I think emotions uh, are the language of the soul, who we really are. We may make decisions based, you know, on logic. We may think we right. do, but we don't. We make them with, right? And we only make um, buying decisions based on two things solving a problem or making me feel good. Right. Yeah. Um, so, your job as a seller is to solve someone's problems and make them feel good about dealing with you. That second one is emotional, yeah. is the trust, no, say, is that I care about you, I understand and you. it starts with li- listening the right way. Yes, and, that, and treating them as the most important person in the world. Right. If you do that, you never lose because that's all we want. All of us is to feel important. Right. So if you're buying something from somebody, if that person that's trying to sell you makes you feel like it's going to change your life and that you deserve it almost more than anyone, you're more likely to buy it. Absolutely. So stemming the mentorship and the success conversation into something else here, change is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. 
It's the topic that I opened up with at my seminar in Philadelphia. Because I think that before you go into anything new, before you go at learning something new, before you go at trying to be more entrepreneurial, before you go at changing your job maybe, or getting a new job even, I think change is the biggest issue that holds people back from taking big steps forward in the direction of maybe what they think, like you said, they want to do. A lot of people don't know what they want to do, but maybe they know they need to change. So talk to me and talk to us about change. And what do you think are some of the biggest catalysts of change? Well, again, I think it's fear or love. Still. Right, yeah. Um, look at global warming, right? Mm-hmm. We know that in a few years it's going to be catastrophic, but as human beings, we can't make it a decision to change to change why because it's not imminent most people don't change until there's a catastrophic thing in their life is that not what i said at the seminar i my reference was um football players a lot of professional football players don't stop playing until what they They get get hurt hurt. right a lot of people don't change Um, the alcoholic doesn't stop drinking until he kills someone or until someone he knows dies from it right that changes him nothing else changes him he doesn't care if his wife yells at him every night and he's going to get a divorce. But when somebody dies, that might be emotional enough, emotionally driven, to make a change. Right. I think emotions drive change, right? Would you agree? Well, yes, plus facts on the ground, right? Like, so if you get sick, it changes everything. Sure. But or I think you lose that. a job. Yeah. You lose it. You get divorced. So then change is forced on you. So what's something that people you think could do to make change easier? So first of all, I think that you should embrace it as a, as a common... Um, fact of life that what you do at 30 is not what you do at 40, 50, or 60. Two is be excited about change. You know, in order for skin to be reborn, old skin has to die. Same thing with cells. So it's almost like a perspective you're saying. Have the right perspective on the change. Yeah. Embrace change. Embrace diversity and you know, new things in your life. Like when your hands start to get sweaty because you're going through a difficult situation, you should almost let that motivate you because you're like, oh man, I'm growing. That's what the sweat is almost, right? Right. Um, and um, I think lastly, you know, you know, most people say that if you talk to people on their deathbed, they don't talk about working harder or doing something um that has to do with work, but that they, the only thing that they regret is not taking more chances, making more changes. If you don't change during the dependency of your life, you're going to be like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. You're going to live the same thing, the same problems, the same life, and you're stuck. You've got to change, whether it's where you live, your job, your wife. So, before you go too deep on that, if you're someone right now who's listening, and you don't have an emotional reason to change, you're that football player that hasn't gotten hurt yet, what then can you look to to motivate the change? If you have no emotional reason, but you're starting to think a little bit about changing your situation, whether it be personal or professional. Right. Well, no matter where you are in life, if you look out for five years, you're going to probably be in a different situation. So, to me, even when I would get a new job, I was always thinking, okay, what's my next job, right? Um, Because I'm always looking ahead. Um, So that's what I would say to your audience. Look five years. Don't, you know, sure, live in the moment, but look out five years and have a plan where you want to be. And then make, you know, decisions to get there. I would say on that, a lot of people don't do that 
which is why you should. A lot of people are just planning for the next year. And the saying goes, you overestimate what you can do in a year and you underestimate what you can do in five years. I think people lack the discipline and the consistency to do something for five years. That's what's led to our success is that I've been trading for five years. This is our fifth year. So if we can do it another five years, we're not only just doing something that much longer, gaining all that experience that we talked about, gaining all those failures and learning from them, but we're also just doing something longer. The consistency is almost admirable. Wouldn't you agree? When you do something for that long and you can commit to something like that, it's admirable, it's respectable. Absolutely, and you have to, you know, work at something to become an expert. But my point about looking five years ahead is um, really more about perspective than discipline. Again, what is it that you want? That's where you think most people are fucking up, right? Like, it seems like from the, even with the success where we started the interview, from in your experience, would you say most people are wrong about what they think they want? They don't know what they want. They don't even have an idea. Right. Or if they do know, it comes into their head and then their negative chatter takes over. Negative self-talk. Right. Yep. No, I'm not tall enough. I'm not young right. enough. I'm right. not handsome enough. Right. So then they just kill that idea. So let's talk about that. Where does that negative self-talk come from? Your ego. Even deeper than that. I think it comes from even like where you were raised, who you're around. You know what I mean? If you hung around with five people like me, you wouldn't talk to yourself negatively. Because I talk to myself so positively all the time. I believe in myself and, and I, she believes in me. And there's so much belief, you almost block out that negativity. So you're saying that it's all environment. I don't know if it Not is. Not all environment, but a big piece of it is, you know? The bottom line is that we all have it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Everybody talks negatively to themselves. All the time. Uh, all the time. Yep. Really. Um, so the only way that I think to get over negative self-talk is one, be an observer. Notice that it's going on and don't pay attention to it. And two, have a gratitude journal and be grateful for all the things that you do have. And I also think the third one would be, like you just said, keep that longer term perspective. Keep the five-year focus. Yeah. You won't be so negative on yourself about what you just screwed up today if it doesn't matter in five years. So if you're five-year focused, yeah, this is a loss today, but in five years, I'm not even going to remember this day. What is it, the 27th? You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's like that perspective. It, it's, it's a positive expectation. So expectations is an unusual, you know, sort of thing because some people say, well, I don't want to expect success. Right, because I don't want to be let down. But if you don't expect success, chances are you won't get it. I think that you need to expect success, but have the right mindset to flip a failure into a success in a different way. Right. When you lose, when we lose, if I lose a sale or if someone, you know, just doesn't come through the right way or whatever it is, it's just an, it's not so much a failure. It's something you can just learn from. So with that perspective, like we said before, I think you're on more of a track than you need to be. But I want to ask you, since we're talking about change and what drives change, something that you've told me recently that you would look back on that you would change for yourself is your outlook overall. <laughs> I know. But there, you're, what I what stuck out to me and what I've actually used in reference points in a lot of recent videos is your acceptance now that you worried too much about things you had no control over. You stressed out too much over things that really didn't matter. Right. Can you speak on that a little bit for everybody? And what that experience has taught you now that you're older and you're looking back on that? Yeah, well, so I've always been interested in international affairs. So when I was a kid, and they used to sound the alarms and we would go into the hallway because the nuclear war weapons were being launched, I thought, I'm never gonna have kids because we're gonna blow each other up. 
when 9-11 happened, um, I went out and I got a kit in case there was a terrorist attack that we would be able to live for a few weeks without going outside. Doomsday prepper. Doomsday. All this crazy, crazy stuff. You wonder where I get it from. So, well, I always pride myself on being fully informed because I often think of the Jews in Germany, like why didn't more of them try to get out or fight more? So you got to be informed, but you got to have the wisdom to know what you can worry about and what you shouldn't worry about. So... I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. Where does that wisdom come from? Where does it come from to know, now looking back on your life, is it almost like, because for me, when you say that, I think of almost blind faith, right? And for the events that I've lived through and I've seen, knowing that, yes, 9-11 can happen. Like, I remember when mom picked me up early that day from school, and I remember having the kit in the basement where you were stocking up all the stuff, and I remember all that. Where do you think people can stop the worry? Where can people say, you know what, this is a situation that I have no control over? Is that what you're saying you would rather have gone back and done? Like, Because 9-11, right, it doesn't apply there. So again, um, everything to me is emotions, right? So it's logical to say, well, 9-11 won't happen again. We have the Department of Homeland Security um, or whatever. The answer at this stage in my life that those things that I worried about are not going to happen, and even if they do happen, they happen, is faith. Uh, Because if you have true faith in God or in um, universal intelligence or whatever superior energy force exists, you know, in the universe, then you know the end is not in doubt. Um, And so I think it's my faith now that has afforded me less worry about things I have no control over. So whether you're religious, or whether you believe in the universe, or whatever, that faith, that what? Faith in what? Faith that I'm going to be okay? Or faith in that I'm going to die at the end of the day one day and it don't matter? Faith that the end, the, the, the end is um, my successful end, whether I die tomorrow or, to, or next week, is not in doubt. Um, and that is to say that when it happens, and it happens to all of us, we will find a true peace um, away from, you know, the struggles that a lot of people have in life, right? And a lot of people have many, many struggles. Um, and so, if you don't worry about the end, death, the ultimate fear, you worry about nothing. Right. You worry about nothing. Let me throw another quote at you, too. give give me some feedback on something that I've learned in I would say one of my biggest lessons in 2019 has been that the quote the journey is the end is a very true sentence I think I've internalized it more in the business sense the journey is the end like what what is the end of of growing a business you made a million dollars last year you're gonna stop you made 10 million that year you're gonna stop there's no end and I've internalized that really well this year how would you tell me to work on internalizing the, that idea more in my personal life? Because that's basically what you're saying. Accepting the idea that death is inevitable. We all end up in the ground. And now I have the personal reference points of what our family has gone through to understand how short life can be. So you can worry about 9-11. You can worry about this and that. But tomorrow, mom could get hit by a bus. You know what I'm saying? Life can be that way. So what, 
where when you say faith and you rely on that faith, what motivates you to believe in it? What motivates you to 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 succumb to it? Going inside. All of the answers are inside. Inside you. Yeah. They're not in any of these books. They're not in a church or a synagogue. When you get quiet and you see the energy and the power within you to be a creator and that you are part of the universe and part of God, that's where the faith comes from. Something that you just made me think of that I think is valuable for people listening is something that you and I have kind of not beefed about, but I've shared my feelings with you on it in that gift I gave you, where you used to tell me as a kid, the universe doesn't revolve around you. But as an adult, I'm starting to feel every day more and more that it does, that you do manifest what happens in reality first in here. What are your thoughts about that? Have you changed your opinion on that? Or were you just saying that to me as when I was a kid because you didn't want me to get my way? Yeah, the latter. (laughs) Well... When I say the universe didn't revolve around you, what I was saying is that you are, no man is an island, right. right? You need people to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And you need to be nice to people. So that's what I meant. Not that you're not a creator. No, I understand. And, that you can't, and then the way that you manifest is... It means you can't be an asshole. How you think. Right, you can't go around being an asshole letting your ego dictate the universe. Your ego doesn't drive the universe. Right, right. right. Logical mind almost should right. be the one that does. Right. And the emotional feelings of who you are, what you're what you're really trying to say. Right. On the other hand, though, from a metaphysical standpoint, I do believe that we are just specks in the universe. We may be able to manifest if we tap into it, but um, there's something so big and so vast out there. I mean, just look at space. It's just incredible. It's mind-blowing. So you don't think we're in a simulation? Uh, like the Matrix? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Elon Musk thinks we are. So let me let me steer us back towards a little bit more talking about money. Money? Yeah. Yes. Talk about... Our favorite subject. Yeah. Talk about um, your experience in building wealth and in building multiple streams of income, multiple streams of um, just putting your money in different buckets. Explain to me and everybody your thought process on there because I think that without discussing numbers because we don't want to be public about that, it's respectable, the career, anyone can, watching can look you up. They know that you're a successful person, right? So f- for someone that's not as successful as you, me and all these people watching, because we want to be more successful than you. So being an attorney and having to deal with business disputes and bankruptcies and people's failures, yeah. problems, yeah. the one thing that I think kills all wealth building is debt. Um, So I've always tried to stay... um, Cash positive. Well, within my means. So it's not what you make, it's what you spend. Absolutely. Right? So debt is bad unless it's good debt. Which would be... Like real estate. Sure. Right? That makes income. Taking out a loan to start a business that you have proof could be a business. Right. But just to buy things... A TV on interest-free financing ain't the best debt. Right. Yeah. So debt is bad, personally. And I think it's bad from a national standpoint. The thing that's going to cause the next recession is debt. Yes. We have so much debt, it's unbelievable. The second thing I would say about money, or at least with regard to me, is I'm risk-adverse. My personality is risk-adverse. Meaning, if the market goes up one day, and I don't make as much as the market... I'm okay. And when it goes down and I lose less, I I feel better. 
do you think that that because will... that's what Warren Buffett says, right? What's yeah. what's the first principle of making money? Don't lose money. Don't lose money. Of course. Right. But is that middle ground where you have found to be the most successful? You, you have to find what you what you can deal with, what you can sleep with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I've always invested. Real estate was just my home. I never bought real estate because I'm I'm like terrible at fixing things. So I'd be, I would have to rely on so many people. Right? That's a, but listen, that's a fair... That one of my questions was going to ask you about real estate, but that's yeah. a fair point. You knew your strengths. Right. So I always invested in stocks, bonds. Index um, funds. Some index funds, but I'm, I'm mostly in um, actively managed funds now. Um, because when the market starts to go down, I want people who can think about mitigating that loss. Um, but it really, if you look at it, it doesn't matter what you invest in. If you look at the long period of time that I've been investing, what is key is how much you invested. So I would always pay myself at least 10%. Of every check that you took home. Every check. So whether someone listening is a at a job doing a nine to five, or if you're someone like me who's trading to make your income, doesn't matter. You should be taking a piece of that and putting it aside. When I was cutting lawns at 13, I was doing it. Right. So it doesn't matter how you're making money. Every time money comes in, a piece of that money should be put aside to pay yourself. Absolutely. And your future. Absolutely. Yep. Always been. And probably more than 10% today. Probably 15. Is what you're doing now. I'm trying. Trying. It's hard. It's very hard. 15, yeah. A lot of people couldn't afford 15% of their income after paying taxes and things like that, too. Right, right. But you got to pay yourself because at the end of your life, you know, when you can't work anymore, you don't want to work anymore, you're going to have to rely on yourself. Right. Right now they say we have a retirement crisis yeah. in this country where older people are going to try and live on Social Security. It's crazy. You can't live on Social Security. Right. Um, and they're going to suck it dry so the people my age aren't even going to have Social Security. We don't know about that. I, I, I will say. But even so, those people did not save any money. Right? Um, or they had a catastrophic event which depleted their savings. So. But I would even go at that and say they should have saved more then. Yeah. We had a cat, couple catastrophic events and we saved enough. You saved enough. Right. Yeah. But it was important to me. Right. Anyway, and I had a fight with your mother all the time. She always wanted to buy, buy, buy. Right. Right. So when you talk, I want to just backtrack to something you said about the mutual funds versus the index funds. For people that aren't. Um, super savvy about this. The difference is basically an index fund. You can set that up with Vanguard. You set one up for me when I was 19 or 18 and we pump money into that and it's not actively managed. There's not someone changing the allocation of stocks and uh, bonds in that fund. If they're a mixed fund or whatever it is, there's not someone changing that. It's the same. It stays the same. You put the money there and it grows for you at a better rate than inflation so you don't lose money and you make a little bit on the top. That's an index fund versus a mutual fund Mutual fund is, like you said, actively managed by a trader or someone that thinks that they know better. So for someone like me and my audience, who a lot of them are actively invested in markets, multiple markets or one market, why have you chose to not trade your own money but go with a mutual fund over an index fund? Because, let me just give you my full thought, my thought is if you don't want to trade your own money, why trust another trader? If you don't trust yourself to get smart enough to understand how to actively trade it, why have you paid the fees to the mutual fund instead of going to the index fund. I'm not saying to become a trader yourself because I know it's not your speed. I'm saying, why did you go with that mutual fund actively managed? And I understand the pro of it, but the con is the fees, way higher in fees than an index fund. 
why didn't you put more money in the index funds? And would you have if you could go back? I think for the reason I said before, because when things start to melt down, you want someone who's got that, their hands on the wheel. Right. And you trust them enough to where you're doing research on this fund and you're like, all right, I believe this guy enough to that he knows his shit. Like, I only own five or six funds. Right. And every fund that I own, the manager has over a million dollars of his own money in, in the, the fund. fund. Right. He's got skin in the game. So you're, that makes you feel good. Makes me like, good. if I was going to collect money from people to trade with, you wouldn't be happy to put money in unless I said I was putting 50K of my own money into it. Right. And remember how I said I hate to lose? Yeah. So when the um, stock market crashed 10 years ago, yep. and it went down like 50%. You didn't lose 50%, I remember. These actively managed funds lost 25, less than right. right. Cut your loss in half. So that made me feel better. Yep, and that's a fair point. Have you found that diversification between stocks, bonds, and um, mutual funds, things like that, has that led to more wealth than it would have had you, had you just put it all in one mutual fund 30 years ago. So if I would have put all my money in stock the whole time that I invested, I would have made more money. Really? If you just put bought the S&P, right. I would have done better. Right. So I was wrong, but I couldn't handle the gyrations. Right, because at that time. Right. Right. So, okay. so and as you get older, um, you know, you're, you're always in this accumulation phase. Well, now I'm getting older, so now I have to look at it a phase of income paying me. So then everything changes. Right. So you want dividend stocks, right? You pay dividends, capital gains. Yeah. You want bonds, you pay interest. Right. So, you know, as you grow as you, in life, as you change, so do your investment objectives. And for someone like you, you're on the back end of this technological era that we live in. You, yes, came, in, you came into it at the end. You didn't even get an iPhone until we were on iPhone 6s. So right. you're on the back end of it. With you knowing that, and now you seeing what I do with Forex, and me showing you the statistics of how the market is not only getting bigger in traders, but bigger in volume, more access to people, because the internet's getting uh, easier to access in Africa and in Asia, all over the world. All, all these people are going to be able to start trading. Right. Now we have cryptocurrency. That's a big thing over the last three years, right? Becoming very mainstream. All of these things... What kept you from ever going into another asset class? Why did you never buy REITs? Why did you never buy cryptocurrency when it came out? Why didn't you turn to technology as it became more of a prevalent thing? Knowing that you're not stupid. Like you didn't think that we were gonna be writing on stones forever. You know, you knew computers were the way. Why did you not jump all in? Imagine if you had bought Bitcoin three or four years ago. You know what I mean? That's my thought. Because I'm not... <clears throat> Gambler, you're not a, a leader in that sense. You wouldn't go first, you'll go second or third. Uh, well, no, I, I don't even go second or third. I'm not a gambler, and every time I've tried to gamble, I lost. So, I once bought this pharmaceutical drug which was going to cure AIDS. You bought the stock, right? I once bought this gold stock that was going to skyrocket, right? Um, I bought um, some tech uh, companies right before the tech meltdown. So, what'd you buy them in 2000? Yeah. 2001? Yeah. So every time I've tried to do that... You're at the wrong time. I'm at the wrong time. That's just you, though. Even right. with this house. Didn't you buy this house at the wrong time? Yeah, but I knew that. Because, right, because I knew didn't, that was I didn't want to move twice. Right. But I didn't know about the so others. So the timing didn't line up for you. So it never works for me. Right. So then I just say to myself, okay, the tortoise in the hair... I'm going to be the tortoise. I'm going to be the tortoise. Slow, slow and slow. Slow and but steady. But it paid off for you. 
You've, ne you've never had to go take a loan out for some $400 expense. Like, I mean, the stats right now... Thank God, right? The stats right now are disgusting. How mo the average person... And, I, and it's just, I say it's disgusting, but I'm very grateful that neither of us are in that position where 40% of Americans couldn't take a $400 random expense. Flat tire and you need a new axle, they can't do it. That scares me. Now you put that on top of credit card debt at its all-time high, highest it's ever been. You put plus, let's put a little plus sign, plus student loan debt, the highest it's ever been. Plus auto loans are having more defaults in 2018, 2019 than any other year previous. So I just threw those three at you and now I'm gonna throw one more. The stock market making all-time highs day after day after day, even with all this debt just building and building and building. So what does that tell you, someone that has experience in markets, um, all different kinds of markets for how many years? What does this situation tell you? I know, I've heard you reference it as a melt up, right? Right, so if you look at even the 30s during the depression, right before the stock market crashes, it melts up incredibly. We're, we're, just to find the melt up being, a lot of people are saying, hey, this is a couple indicators that are saying we're at a bad point here, but it just keeps going because you got the, almost like the dumb retail person still pumping it higher, still buying more, buying more, which drives the price up. But at some point, that melt-up stops, right? Yeah. Look, everything that goes up comes down. This is the longest ball in history. In history. And it's fueled mostly by cheap money. Yep. Because the Fed... Credit. It's fueled by credit. Well, that's what I mean. Cheap money, yeah. Right. Yeah. Fake money. Right. Because the Fed keeps lowering interest rates when they really should have been hiking them. Yep. So... And when you mentioned all those debt obligations, what you failed to mention is what they call unfunded liabilities of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. So explain that to me. Well, because the society is getting older. Mm -hmm. Those accounts that fund Medicare and Medicaid, they're being depleted faster. That's right. And they're not being funded properly. And they're huge. And Congress doesn't have the balls to raise the Social Security and Medicare age. So... When that comes to roost, interest rates are going to skyrocket, stock market's going to crash, and it's going to be a very bad. Because time. you'll have people that lose money in the stock market, their 401ks are going to lose 50 or 40% or whatever it's going to be again, and then you're going to have all these sick old people that can't afford it to right. take care of themselves. Like their, their Medicaid checks stop coming in, and now they have no money because they well, didn't, right? Their Medicaid checks won't stop coming in. They'll shrink? No. Well, they may. Uh, yeah, especially if it's a Republican administration. But um, what will happen is is that everything will just cost so much more money because the government is sucking so much money out of the system. So price of cost of living goes up crazy. Right, and inflation. Plus, when the government has inflation, the cost of their debt goes down, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, look, I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert. This is just my opinion. To go backwards a little bit. Yeah. Inflation is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. They don't think about it when they put their money in the savings account at Wells Fargo or a TD Bank. Right. Had you not invested the way that you did and had you just sat on cash, you'd actually have less money today than you would have earned in theory, right? Because of inflation. Yes. And then with cost of living, like you just mentioned, going up as much as it has been, you'd be basically broke. So if you're not actively investing in some way, whether you're a trader like me, or you're putting your money in an investment, if you're just leaving money in a savings account, you're going broke almost, right? Yes. You're basically running yourself dry. Yeah. So it's very foolish, we can agree, to sit on a lot of cash. You should have your emergency savings, and that's basically about it. 
Everything else should be in an investment. Would you agree? Yes. So with the current situation, with all of this, these debt obligations, and now the Medicare and Medicaid thing being a fourth one or a fifth one, whatever, with 2020 coming up with this election next year, and things continuing to push in the direction that they have pushed, where you now have impeachment as a big thing. Let me just throw this in there too. With this impeachment scandal, since October 20, excuse me, since October 31st, 2019, the S&P is up over 5%. That's when they decided that they were going to officially put the articles of impeachment forward when the Democrats decided it was on Halloween. So if that's the case, we're hearing all this impeachment stuff, Trump's the worst guy ever, Trump's the worst. The numbers look great. So we could talk about if the numbers are legit or not in a second. But the numbers look great, yet they want to impeach him, yet the market hears impeachment and gold goes up and the dollar index, the value of the dollar goes up on impeachment. So how do you interpret that? What do you? What does that make you think? If you look at the stock market during wars, Nixon's impeachment, Clinton's, they're separated. The business world doesn't even pay attention to the political world in a lot of ways anymore. Yeah, It's its own animal. It's based on earnings and cash yeah. flow. Yeah. So if the economy is doing good by this time next November, Trump will get elected. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's a fear monger and is dividing the country. Yeah. Everything is about money, right? So if people feel wealthy when they open their 401k statements, he'll get reelected. Do you think that the numbers, unemployment, GDP, these economic standards of what, what what we would say is a good economy, do you think that they're still, in 2019 and 2020, still a good judge of our economic health? Um, I don't know. That's probably a really long-term discussion. Yeah. Because economic health does not just necessarily mean that people's stock portfolio is going up. Right. If you look at the infrastructure of this con country, Downhill. if you look at investments in alternative energy, not been existent, basically. Well, it's, it's growing, but it's small. Right. You look at the education system in this country. We're dropping on every ranking across the world. Mortality. So the average mom and pop guy down the street isn't living much better, even though our economic numbers say that he should be. Exactly. Which and is why I say that those numbers are bullshit. And as a country, and this is proven out by polls, most people don't think we're going in the right direction yeah. because we're not making investments in the future. No, none. Would you say that for people like me that are younger and haven't seen a lot of economic and political situations, is this the worst that it's ever been? No. It's been way worse. Uh, way worse. Way worse, right? When I mean, I, when I was growing up, we were protesting the Vietnam War and the National Guard was killing people. Um, Martin Luther King got shot and the, the black community was burning down the cities. Um, we um, had a few wars. And so as bad as it appears, no, it's been way worse. I think it's almost like one of the best times to be alive. Being a part of this melt up has been, I think, it's going to turn, it's going to be able to, to be a reference point when we look back to it and be like, wow, that was amazing. I want to mention one thing to your audience because most of them are young yeah. men, yeah. Yep. right? If you look at the last election, um, Donald Trump got 60 million votes. Hillary Clinton got 63 million. A hundred million people did not vote. Wow. A hundred million. More than voted for either one of them. More than Sat that. at home. 
So it's really up to all of you. You can't complain if Donald Trump gets us in a war or if a leader does something wrong if you, you don't, don't vote. vote. You've got to vote. You've got to. Yeah. Even if it's for someone that isn't the mainstream candidate, I think voting in any way is an expression of who you are. Well, not only voting, but it'd be great if you got involved too. Right. Like if you look at the Congress now, a lot of young women. Yeah. And truthfully, I think women, with all due respect to your audience, make much better politicians than men. Oh, I agree. Because they're less ego-driven. Right. So I'm very hopeful uh, about, you know, the future. But I would say to your folks, you know, get involved and vote. Absolutely. Riley and I are big supporters of Yang. We've told you that. He's up to 5% as of now in the national polls. He took over Buttigieg's spot. Why is he picking up steam? Because he's actually tapping into those 100 million people that did not vote. Because he's saying... Like, this is as simple as it is. What wins over a Trump supporter? $1,000 a month for every 18-year-old or above in your household. Right. So you got three of you, husband, dad, and an 18-year-old. You got three grand a month right there. But you also have a lot of young people your age going for Bernie. Yeah. Right? And he's like a socialist who wants to... That's the smartest move. Well, you're a capitalist. I am. I assume most of your audience are capitalists. Yeah. If you look at socialism, which was tried in Europe, really hasn't worked out well. So there must be capitalism with some compassion. But we're not really a d- democracy. We're like a capitalistic oligarchy where the, the people who have the most money aren't out openly saying that they're running shit, but we know that they have more influence. They know they can pay the lobbyists. They know they can get things done. Right. Money controls everything. I mean, look at these corporations. And, and here's another thing to keep it political and economic. No other Democratic candidate or Trump is talking about huge issues to me. Why did Amazon not pay any money in taxes on $11 billion in profits? That tax revenue is big. All these digital transactions that we do are big. And I am someone who sells a product online. There's no tax for that transaction. It's almost like it doesn't exist in our economy except for the transaction of money being passed from someone to my business account. Those transactions, I think, if we could tax them, could generate income. and that income can be used to plan for the future, which none of these politicians are talking about. And that's why no one went out and voted. That's why 100 million people sat home because Hillary's talking about outdated bullshit and the people that wanted to vote for a Democrat and wanted some change didn't vote for Trump. So they all stayed home. And that's why I, I appreciate you trying to put that message out to people to vote because I agree. I think a lot of people sit on their ass but are very quick to complain, you know? And Trump brings out a lot of interesting characteristics of who we are as a country. And it's almost embarrassing, you know? So as bad as those socialistic countries are in some ways, I talk to her all the time about saying, it could be better. Like, why couldn't we just live in a country that didn't get involved in wars that it didn't need to be? No regime change wars, no, none of that. Provides free healthcare, doesn't spend all my fucking money on building bombs, right? That blow up civilians at a wedding, you know, or whatever they're gonna be used to do. So in some ways, there's those social aspects of it that carry weight to people like me and Riley. So to the super socialist people, the people that want every government program handed to them, what would you say to them? Is that the answer? Because I personally don't think it is. I don't think that the government should be handing you everything. Well, listen, I've got an hour and 15 minutes here, so I wanna wrap it up. I have one thing I wanna end with. Give everyone, give me five, if you can, give me three or five, not four or two, three or five, tips on creating and and sustaining wealth to the point where you don't have to worry about that $400 expense that might come up tomorrow. 
what would you tell someone that is my age, on, let's just say under 40, if we're at that point where money's starting to come in, things are starting to turn, right. if you look back on your life, what are some of those situations where you would say, I would do this a little bit differently, and that's advice I'd give to my younger self? I think we've gone over a lot of them, right? One, don't spend uh, more than you make. Two, pay yourself. Three, um, everyone you meet, improve their life. Four, find out what it is that you want to do and who you want to serve. And five, don't quit. Thank you for listening to Today's Money. If you want to check out the video that goes along with this episode, there's a link in the show notes. Now make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you don't miss any future episodes. And if there's anything that I can do to help you along your trading journey, please reach out to me. My contact info is in the description as well. Thank you very much, and I'll see you in the next episode.